It's 6 p.m. and you are listening to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. My name is Claudio Mendoza and it's time for KVMR's Evening News. Tonight, the California Report provides details about the measure to recall Governor Gavin Newsom and explains how for the first time in its history, our state will lose a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. We'll cover local news and weather before listening to Gary Zimmerman's economic report. We close tonight with a commentary about debt and deficits by Mark Cunaberti. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Governor Gavin Newsom will face a recall election later this year. State officials have announced that the campaign to remove the governor from office has gathered enough signatures to put it before voters. KQED politics reporter Guy Marzarotti has more. The campaign to remove Newsom from office picked up steam late last year as pandemic fatigue and frustration with the governor's COVID-19 restrictions, combined with an ill-advised dinner at the French Laundry, gave momentum to a long-shot campaign. Now Newsom will be just the second governor in state history to face a recall election. On Monday, state officials reported more than 1.6 million valid voters had signed the recall petition. That will put Newsom's fate on the ballot like likely toward the end of the year. For the California Report, I'm Guy Marzarotti. Randy Economy, an advisor and spokesperson for the recall Newsom campaign, told the California Report that he thinks the recall measure's approval shows that, quote, democracy still works in California. But critics of the Newsom recall say the idea was pushed by right-wing extremists, and it will cost the state millions of dollars that could be better spent elsewhere. In other news, the 2020 census results are out and California is among the losers, at least politically speaking. As KQED's Katie Orr reports, the count means that for the first time in its history, the state will lose a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. California's congressional delegation will drop from 53 to 52 based on the census. While the state's population has grown over the past 10 years, it hasn't kept pace with the rest of the country. Redistricting consultant Paul Mitchell says while losing a congressional seat isn't great, it could have been worse for California. The state spent $200 million on working with community-based organizations and doing phone banking and texting and when it was appropriate, doing actual in-person outreach in communities to try to bolster the completion of census forms. On the other hand, he says states like Florida and Texas could have gained more seats than they did if they'd made as big an outreach effort as California. For the California Report, I'm Katie Orr in Sacramento. You've just heard about the political consequences of the 2020 U.S. Census for the Golden State. But consider this question. When it comes to counting Californians, was the census anywhere close to accurate, even with the outreach efforts done by the state? One person who thinks the final tally is flawed and undercounted communities of color and immigrants is Fernando Guerra. He's the director for the Center for the Study of Los Angeles at Loyola Marymount University and closely follows California demographics. Guetta shared his census concerns with the California report after the numbers were released. I fully expected and probably occurred that there was an undercount uh, in California, especially uh, Los Angeles County. 
an undercount for what reason? Well, there's a variety of different factors. One, uh, immigrants who may not be documented and don't want to be documented, that is, counted. Uh, number two, incredible high mobility. We have one of the lowest uh, percentage of home ownership, so therefore we have renters, and renters tend to uh, move around uh, and much more difficult to count. Um, also, given the cost of housing and renting, it's not unusual to have uh, more than one family in a rental unit, which is not on the lease. So people don't want to count those people. Uh, and they, you know, the census form comes and only one family is counted. Number three, in terms of renters, we have a lot of uh, garage conversions and other conversions that happen throughout the older suburbs uh, where uh, the census doesn't have that address. They never get the form. And so there's all kinds of these uh, trends, mostly having to do with uh, housing, immigration status, and, um, and equity that creates a population that is just much more difficult to count than one traditionally thinks. You know, there were also a lot of suspicions that the Trump administration was actively trying to sabotage an accurate count, especially in blue states like California and blue cities like L.A. and San Francisco. Do you think these census numbers could also reflect that? You know, there was also attempt by the Trump administration to make immigration status an issue, which would lead to an undercount. Even though it wasn't implemented, the whole narrative certainly filtered down to uh, the undocumented community that said uh, that they were going to try to get immigration status and may even use that immigration status. Even though it never happened, that didn't matter. The narrative was set that you're going to be counted, uh, documented, identified as an undocumented immigrant, and that that could create a liability for you. So it could have created this atmosphere of anxiety and fear, and maybe a lot of people were too scared to participate in the census. Right. The census depends on a lot of participation and initiative for the population at large. To be counted means to also be active and to make yourself known. Uh, The last thing that some individuals want to do is make themselves known. If they are undocumented immigrants, you are asking people to make themselves known proactively, and they're not about to do that. I won't hold you to a hard and fast number, but do you have a sense of generally what the undercount might have been, say, in the city or county of Los Angeles? Sure. Um, my rough estimate, knowing certain uh, neighborhoods like Pico Union and Westlake, South Los Angeles, there was probably uh, at least uh, 100 to 250,000 more people in Los Angeles County. That's like a whole city unto itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Those people taken together just in Los Angeles County there were undocumented would be the largest city in most states. Again, that was Professor Fernando Guerra of Loyola Marymount University. Support for the California Report comes from Personal Capital, helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor. PersonalCapital.com Stanford Medicine protecting your health, and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, 
working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. And that's the California Report for Tuesday, April 27th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Today, the Nevada County Board of Supervisors unanimously voted to allocate approximately $5.8 million, about 30% of the money the county received by way of the American Rescue Plan Act, to support community and economic resiliency. The money is intended to offset COVID-19-related economic hardships and disruptions to local businesses and nonprofits and to foster economic recovery. Board Chair Dan Miller said, quote, As a board, we intend to help our community recover from this pandemic. With these American Rescue Plan dollars from Washington, we can provide some immediate relief to our small businesses and nonprofits that have suffered so much already and to invest in longer-term recovery. County staff plans to bring back specific recommendations in late May about the criteria and application process for board approval before funds are expended. The criteria and application process will be consistent with U.S. Department of Treasury guidelines. In regional weather, dry and sunny conditions have returned to our entire listening area, and a warming trend will continue throughout much of the week. For Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, clear, with a low around 45. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 75. And Truckee and Lake Tahoe will be clear and cold tonight, with a low around 23. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 65. And finally, for Woodland and Sacramento, clear skies tonight, with a low around 49 degrees. Gusty winds of up to 20 miles per hour are expected after midnight. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 86. Next up, we have Gary Zimmerman's Economic Report. The report is sponsored by Rick Kelb, Wealth Management Advisor with Northwestern Mutual since 1983 on Spring Street, Nevada City. Also at rickkelb.com. Well, Gary, welcome back to KVMR. Well, it looks like uh, there's a lot of new economic indicators that, that have been published this week and have some pretty good news. Uh, now let's start with the GDP and what will it show for the first three months of this year? Yes, Paul. Hi. Um, it looks like we're going to have a, a big week for economic indicators. Um, we're going to get the first estimate of GDP or gross domestic product uh, for the first quarter of 2021. Again, GDP represents the dollar value of domestic goods and services produced by the U.S. economy in a, in a quarter or, or a year. Um, and you know, when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the 2020 data that showed the economy contracted or shrunk by three and a half percent in 2020 um, compared to what it was in 2019. So you know, in, the, in a normal year, when the economy is at full employment with you know roughly two percent inflation. Uh, we'd expect output to grow at you know almost two percent a year. Well, Gary, can you tell us anything about the national gross domestic product or GDP estimate for the first quarter of twenty one that will be released this week? Do you expect a good number, average, or just okay? Well, Paul, let's see. Um, you can go to several of the Federal Reserve banks to get their take, um, looking at their 
basically statistical models that are estimating um, based on the most recent data coming in. You know, and that can be sometimes on a change it on a, a daily or weekly basis. Um, and they have, you know, the Federal Reserve Bank in New York and the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta have two of those uh, interesting ones that we can look at. Uh, the New York Fed's uh, now casting model um, as of today is looking at 6.9% growth rate for 2021, the first quarter. You know, that's quite a bit <laughs> way above the 2% long run average. And the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta's GDP now, and you can go actually get both of these from their websites, um, their public websites. They're looking at 8.2% annual growth rate um, for the first quarter. That's even higher than New, the New York uh, model. Um, and both of those are well above the private sector consensus forecast by the blue chip um, forecasters. And that's you know coming in at about 5.4% for the first quarter. So bottom line, I think we should expect a very strong quarter and a great start for 2021. So you expect then that the data will show that the economy has made a strong rebound in the first quarter of, of 2021 after a, a pretty deep recession uh, last year. Yeah, yes, Paul. I think the new data, you know, from what we're seeing from the statistical models, you know, using the recent data, the you know, and most of the economic forecasts are all pointing towards a, a strong start to the year in terms of output or GDP. And, you know, again, we need that rapid growth to get out of the hole that uh, the economy fell in, you know, caused by the 2020 COVID recession. And, you know, you know, at one point we had, you know, over 20 million workers unemployed and it's going to take a strong economy to put them all back to work. Well, what economic forces are there that are driving the recovery at this point? Oh, hey, that's a loaded question, Paul. Um, but I, I, yeah, I have some thoughts about that. I think it's important, you know, that you know, recovery is is coming along. Um, you know, things like improving public health, massive government aid, Federal Reserve policy support are all, I think, helping. Uh, so let me let me go through some of those. I don't think necessarily in any particular order of importance. You know, I think we'll take time to see which of them were driving the recovery. But, you know, the improvement in the economy um, is, is certainly helped by the COVID-19 pandemic as, you know, we've added, you know, 200 million doses of vaccine um, <laughs> to the arms of the public. So that's that's a plus, I think. And, you know, the, the problems, um, you know, COVID cases and hospitalizations are down. So that's, you know, that's good news. And the, you know, fewer thing, things are being restricted or, or locked down. Uh, the COVID economic relief packages are certainly boosting spending, which they need to do and providing support for workers, businesses and state and local governments. And, you know, that fiscal policy support in 2020 and what's been authorized this year in 2021, we're now looking at, you know, a total of somewhere in the range of four to five trillion dollars. And that's a lot of fiscal policy support. But again, it's necessary to get this recovery uh, and get the economy back to normal. And, you know, likewise, the Fed's monetary policy support, uh, very low interest rates, and Fed's bond purchases are, are helping as well. And, you know, zero interest rates are very stimulative monetary policy. And, you know, finally, you know, after a recession ends, recoveries tend to pick up fairly quickly. And this one is, you know, I think happened and that's happening as well with all of the, the government and Fed support. OK, Gary. So let me ask you about the monetary policy by the Fed Federal Reserve. Uh, aren't they meeting again soon? And do you expect any major policy changes by the Fed? 
Well, Paul, that's the question. Uh, many, uh, many Fed watching economists and analysts are pondering this week. Um, the Fed is meeting for two days this week. Uh, meeting finishes on Wednesday, and they'll uh, announce any monetary policy uh, interest rate decisions at the end of that meeting. Um, kind, of, kind of looking at the consensus of what those forecasters are, or excuse me, what those Fed watchers are saying, it, it seems clear they don't expect any major changes at this meeting. They expect the Fed will continue with its target short-term interest rate of zero to uh, a quarter percent on the Fed funds rate. Uh, and I'd agree. I'm not expecting much to happen because the the Fed remains far from meeting its monetary policy goals of full employment. You know, we still have about probably close to 8 million workers who are still unemployed. Um, and we still have an inflation rate that remains below the Fed's sort of average 2% inflation goals. So, you know, the Fed's likely to continue its policies designed to help the economy until the economy reaches those two uh, policy goals. So, Paul, I, I'd also recommend, you know, folks listen to or, or check out the news uh, on the Fed chair Powell's press conference after the meeting on Wednesday, where they discuss, you know, what the Fed did, what they're interested in, um, and what maybe provide some clues to what the timing and the direction of future Fed policy changes might be. Okay, Gary, one last question. There are lots of other economic indicators that will be published this week. Uh, in your view, will they generally be good, okay, or maybe not so good? <laughs> well, I think in addition to the GDP numbers, we, we're, we've talked about some other economic indicators that you know give important information on the health of the economy and the strength of recovery and things like personal income, spending, consumer sentiment, factory output, housing, <laughs> inflation numbers. And I generally expect them to be positive this week with many giving signals of a strong recovery in 2021. Um, we saw a pretty good durable goods orders number coming in today, and we'll see personal income and spending and consumer confidence this week, and those should be strong as well. Um, so, you know, I'm pretty confident that we're going to see some good economic news this week. Um, and that's that's a good sign. Well, we'll find out, Gary, and uh, I'll check in with you with some of the same questions in two weeks. Okay. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much, Gary. You have been listening to KVMR's Economic Report with Gary Zimmerman. Finally, we bring you a commentary about debt and deficits by Mark Cunaberti. Welcome to Money Matters. My name's Mark Cunaberti. It is no secret the U.S. government has amassed a lot of debt. Many people don't give government debt much thought, and indeed, some believe the government can just spend money on whatever it sees fit, and the world will be better for it. Thankfully, most politicians from both sides of the aisle realize, at least to some degree, that unbridled government spending is not ideal. History dictates an overspending government will eventually run the balance sheet into the rocky shoals of a national debt crisis. The consequences of that, albeit a rare occurrence, can be very severe when it occurs, and the event affects almost every income level. Government debt, like all debt, has to be paid back at some point. The idea that deficits don't matter has been bantered about the political aisles from time to time, but deficits do matter in my house, and probably in yours as well. Public debt is no different, although some would like to think so. Although the U.S. government has been running up deficits for years, the last two decades has seen an unprecedented acceleration. Y2K, 9-11, the dot-com blow-up, and the 2008 real estate and banking implosion 
were all deemed critical enough to warrant even more borrowing to address each crisis. Because of COVID, the last 12 months has witnessed even more government spending and has dwarfed all other previous events. Although spending does not necessarily imply debt accumulation, in the case of the U.S. government, most of the spending has been accomplished by fiat money creation, or money printing as we call it, or by tapping the global credit markets, both of which rack up just more debt. Considering it took 200 years to amass the first trillion in government debt, total U.S. debt has now ballooned to 23 trillion in a few short decades. The last 12 months alone has seen about 6.8 trillion in new debt, and this does not include the proposed 2 billion in infrastructure spending currently on the table from the Biden administration, and literally billions more for ongoing assistance to the credit markets supporting U.S. financial and business institutions. Keeping these figures in mind, an easy argument could be made the path we find ourselves on is unsustainable. Debt simply cannot be accumulated ad infinitum. Since debt is future income brought forward and spent today, debt can only be repaid essentially by working tomorrow for no pay. For what is earned only goes to paying back what was borrowed previously. With $23 trillion in debt and still climbing, the amount is so large, those paying most of the bill will likely not be the ones borrowing it. This means, unless the U.S. adopts the attitude that deficits do indeed matter, it will be our children and their children that will suffer the eventual consequences of our borrowing. Some argue the spending is necessary to solve current crisis and make a better future for future generations, an easy argument to be made by those doing the borrowing. In fact, it's so easy, borrowing has obviously been a commonplace solution for decades. As to the actual consequences, many believe U.S. debt can just be wiped clean in some sort of jubilee event. If this is true, one could argue we should spend as much as possible and as fast as possible so we can fix all the ills in the world. However, something, hopefully something, and your brain tells you there is something amiss with this conclusion. History tells us without exception debt cannot be wiped clean and that the more debt that is accumulated, the more difficult the payback will be. It is argued that the money spent during the curation of all this debt has been necessary, whether it be for social improvements or crisis mitigation. Whatever one believes, the burden we are leaving to future generations is real, is massive, and is getting worse by the day. If it's our children's money we are spending, and it is, might it be better left for them to decide what's necessary at that time and for us to stop the borrowing? Should we instead limit our own spending to what money we do have? And if we don't have enough for our current needs, to work harder and earn it ourselves? Moreover, if the powers that be cannot make do with the trillions they already have, perhaps we should get somebody in there that can. These difficult questions must be answered at some point. Either that, or we continue to nail future generations to the cross of our own gross economic mismanagement. That does it for today's Money Matters. The views expressed are opinions only and may not necessarily reflect those of this station. Its staff members are underwriters. I hold a Bachelor of Arts in Economics with honors from San Diego State University. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. I hold California Insurance License OL34249 and I'm a Medicare approved agent in the state of California. Thanks for listening. My name's Mark Kuderberg. That's the newscast for tonight, Tuesday, April 27th, 2021. KVMR is supported by Suns Development and the Alternative Building Center, offering environmentally considerate building design and materials since 1999.
supplying recycled cotton insulation, local clay plasters, hemp shield exterior wood finishes, and other bio-based products. Idaho Maryland Road, Grass Valley, sonsdevelopment.com. And Carmen's Garden and Greenhouse, locally owned since 2012 on Loma Rica Drive, Grass Valley. Stocking greenhouse frames, coverings, and components, down-to-earth amendments, and IPM products. Open Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. K-A-R-M-E-N-S gardens.com. I hope you'll stay with us. Coming up next is Embracing the Journey. Tonight, Bonnie McKeegan, licensed clinical social worker, speaks with Lori Burkhart Frank about the California End of Life Option Act. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.